morning. So the Bible reading is Mark 4, starting at 35, finishing at 41. Mark 4, 35 to 41. Page 710 on the small print and 1558 on the large print. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are God and there is no other. Lord, we thank you for this amazing account that we have before us. Please give give us ears to hear and wills to obey your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, it's good to ask, why did Mark include this in his gospel account? In fact, it's always good to ask any biblical writer their purpose in writing, because the answer brings light. In seven short verses... We're given an eyewitness account of Jesus' miracle of calming the storm. Matthew and Luke also thought that it was worth recording, and their accounts are in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 8. But they, they didn't record this just so that history wouldn't forget about Jesus, the great miracle worker. No, their, their purpose is much bigger than that. And if you've got your Bible handy, turn back to chapter 1, Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, which reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's purpose is that he wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah 
and the Son of God. And in calling him that, he sets the expectation that there is more to this than just a title. John's purpose in writing his gospel account is the same. But he states his purpose at the end as he looks back at the many miracles and signs. John chapter 20 and verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's written to glorify the Son of God and give us every reason to believe in him, not just to tickle our ears. The religious enemies of the gospel then and now are eager to point out that God does not have offspring in the same sense that mankind does. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that either, and nor do Christians claim it. What Mark wants his readers to know, as to uh, Matthew, Luke and John, is that Jesus is the divine, eternal Son of God, the one true God who will not share his glory with another. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And the miracles that Mark has recorded for us so far have demonstrated, first, Jesus' lordship over evil spirits with the casting out of the demon from the man in the synagogue. His lordship over sickness and disease when he healed Simon's mother-in-law and the man with leprosy. Jesus also demonstrates his lordship over a person's physical injury and disability in the healing of the paralytic and the restoring of the shriveled hand of another man in the synagogue. Well, the disciples have seen some pretty amazing things. Their faith and their thinking has been really stretched. In fact, we're told that not only were the disciples amazed, but so were those who opposed Jesus. The words used to describe this amazement, indicate that they were beside themselves. They were overcome. They were out of their mind. Or to use a a modern idiom, it blew their minds. Their eyes saw things that their minds could not comprehend. And as we would sometimes say, when something amazing happens... I couldn't believe my eyes. They saw incredible things. But how quickly we lose that sense of awe. How quickly conviction becomes confusion and forgetfulness. It's a sad fact that seeing a miracle or five leaves you where it finds you. No one ever got saved just because they saw a miracle. If seeing miracles were all that was needed, 
you would think that by now the disciples would be thoroughly convinced without any room for doubt and they'd be ready to take on the world. But as we join them in this quiet crossing of, the, of Galilee, we discover that they're neither convinced nor ready. There is stormy weather ahead, as our first point says. Verse 35, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. On that day, what day was that? The day on which the parables of the previous 34 verses were delivered. It's been a long day, a tiring day, and the light is starting to fade as the evening sets in. And we see here the true humanity of Jesus. Teaching and dealing with the crowd has taken its toll. He needs to get away. He's tired. And so he issues the command to cross to the other side of the lake. The other side of Galilee is the less populated and mainly Gentile area. And the crossing would go from Capernaum in the northwest, a travel southeast down to the southeastern coast, a distance of just over 19 kilometres. And verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him with him with them in the boat just as he was. And you'll remember from the beginning of the chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, that when he got into the boat, he taught them from the boat. Just as he was, they took him. He didn't go anywhere. He didn't go to freshen up. There was nothing to do beforehand. They just left as they were. But then Mark includes something that Matthew and Luke don't. He mentions that other boats were with him. And it seems that he's left the crowd, but at least some of the crowd hasn't left him. They hang on every word that he says. They want to hear him. They want to be near him. They follow him in a little flotilla of boats. So that what should have been a peaceful boat trip may well have been interrupted by those who are following him. But they're in for a bumpy ride because there is a storm brewing that will test even the most experienced sailors and fishermen on this night. Verse 37 says, A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. A great windstorm. The NIV says a furious squall, which better describes to our mind uh, what is going on, describes the violence of the situation. But this windstorm arose. It came on them suddenly. It wasn't something that they could have seen coming. And that's because of the geographic nature of, of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee has this distinction of being the lowest lying freshwater lake in the world. It has a surface elevation of 212 metres below sea level and it's surrounded by hills and mountains and the cool air comes rushing down the mountains 
to collide with the warm air coming off the lake and very quickly produces violent squalls and storms. Being experienced fishermen, if they could have seen this storm coming, they would have got off the lake ASAP. But God has other plans for them. Mark uses very descriptive language here when he says a great windstorm. And the word for great there is megas, from which we get our word mega. And the windstorm is lalapse, which means hurricane. So as far as Mark is concerned, what he's saying is, and he, he would have got it from Peter, of course, this is a mega hurricane. I want to look also for a moment at Matthew's account because his description is slightly different. He, he says in uh, Matthew 8.24, 8, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. That's certainly consistent with Mark. But I want to look at those two words, great storm, because Matthew uses the same word for great, meaning the mega word, But for the word for storm, he uses seismos, from which we get our word seismic or earthquake. And what Matthew is saying there is in the same way that the earth shakes violently in a mega earthquake, so this storm is a mega shaking of the water of the Lake of Galilee. The wind is howling. That on its own is frightening. I've experienced, we've experienced an ordinary hurricane where trees have been uprooted, tiles and slates and chimneys are flying off the roofs. That is loud enough. But this is mega. Add to that the seismic upheaval of the lake with waves crashing over into the boat the shouting and the screaming of the disciples, and you have a huge noise. The boat is nearly swamped, and no doubt they're bailing out water as fast as they can, but as fast as they get one lot out, another wave hits them. And the scene that Mark is describing for us is chaotic, noisy, dangerous, and just terrifying. What do you do in a situation like this? Well, like the rest of us, the disciples panicked. What else do you do? And they gave way to their fear and uncertainty and doubt. But as we read this passage, in the relative comfort and safety of our home or church or wherever it is, We ask, how could they be so overcome the way they were? Didn't they have the Lord in the boat with them? He was there. Well, yes, they did. But are they convinced beyond all doubt that Jesus is Lord of all over everything? And as incredible as it may seem, The answer is no. 
they're not thoroughly convinced. They're not convinced yet. And they won't be until after the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection. We need to be careful how we judge the disciples here because for every one finger pointing at them, there's three pointing back at me. How about you and me with all the benefits of knowing the whole story? Are we without sin here? How often have we dishonoured God by giving away to fear? And I want to look at this subject of fear for a few moments, which is our next point. The dictionary defines fear as an unpleasant emotion caused by the threat of danger, pain or harm. That's pretty accurate. And I'm sure it's how God intended it to be. Fear, in that sense, is something that God has given us for our good. And it can be described as a good fear. Good fear stops you stepping off the footpath and going under a bus. Good fear makes you put a fence around a swimming pool to protect children from drowning. Good fear makes you step back behind the safety rail when you're feeding crocodiles on the Adelaide River. That happened to me. I was taking photographs of feeding the crocodiles on a rather large long pole and the crocodile would jump up in the air and I was there at the barrier taking my snapshot and all of a sudden this crocodile came up, crashed against the safety barrier and I could feel the draft as its, as its jaws clapped shut. Well, that was a good lesson to me uh, of good fear. Good fear makes you fear God. In fact, the Bible says it's the beginning of wisdom in Psalm 111 and Proverbs chapter 9. And the person who claims to know no fear is either a fool or they're soon to be dead. There's another dictionary definition of fear that we should consider because there is so much of it about. It's described as the bad feeling you have when you're in danger when something bad might happen when a particular thing frightens you. This is the sort of fear that can be either good or bad. It's a good fear when you're doing 100 in an 80 zone and you keep looking in the mirror to make sure that there are no blue flashing lights coming in your direction. There's an easy fix for that fear just stop speeding. Then there's bad fear that just doesn't make sense, a fear of snakes, you know, spiders and mice. And I must add to that the collective fear and hysteria of COVID orchestrated by pharmaceutical companies and the World Economic Forum and the media that says on the count of three, the whole world will irrationally panic instead of looking at a proper process of medication. There's plenty of fear on board this little boat that night as the storm descends 
on the lake in just a matter of minutes. These are experienced fishermen. This is a mega storm like nothing they've ever experienced. Extreme, violent, hurricane force winds, everything shaking. They're cold, wet, confused, fearful. And where's Jesus when you need him? Verse 38. He was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Now, you may think that that must have been a pretty comfortable cushion for Jesus to sleep with all that noise and rocking and rolling going on. Well, it wasn't the type of cushion or pillow that you and I know. It's a fairly hard leather pad which was used to sit on when you're sailing, uh, manning the oars, or even to lean against As I said earlier, the passage points to the real humanity of Jesus. He is truly tired. It also points to him as the perfect son of God who submits to the Father's will with full assurance that everything written in the scriptures concerning him must be fulfilled. But fear has shattered the disciples' confidence and made them forget what Jesus said as they set out. You remember what he said? Let us go across to the other side. He didn't say, let's try and get across Galilee. No, there's an absolute certainty about it. Let us go across to the other side. But you see what fear does. It suffocates faith. And fear makes you forget the word of the Lord. No, the Messiah does not die by drowning. And besides, Jesus has an appointment on the other side of the lake, which we will get to, not this week. But the disciples are so overcome by fear that they come and wake him up with this fearful cry that we see in verse 38. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And you get the idea of panic on board with the different ways that the disciples address Jesus. Matthew, in in his account, says, so they came to him and woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And Luke simply says, Master, Master, we're perishing. And Mark here says with this dreadful cry, Master or teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And these differences in the accounts actually support the authenticity of each account. It wasn't that one disciple quietly nudged Jesus saying, uh, Excuse me, sir, I think we're in trouble. The reality is that one terrified disciple is crying out one thing and another disciple is crying out something else. But we are focusing on Mark's account. And it's difficult to ascribe any other meaning to this outcry, Master, don't you care that we're perishing, other than a strong criticism of Jesus, as if whatever happens to this disciple's He doesn't care about. 
It's a stinging remark. And given the main source of Mark's information, it may well have come from the mouth and the heart of Peter. There's nothing mild about it. He's saying, or rather shouting, do we mean so little to you? How can you sleep when death is staring us in the face? Don't you care if we're swallowed up by these angry waters? Well, of course he cares. This is the one who spoke these words through the prophet Jeremiah. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Of course he cares. This is the one who said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is he who having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end as he proceeded to wash the disciples' feet. But again, let's not judge them too harshly. There but for the grace of God go you and I. By the grace of God they knew where to go for help. And I love William Hendrickson's comment on this verse. He noted here, we see experienced sailors turning to the carpenter to save them from the storm. I think that's wonderful. Verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still, or be put to silence, be muzzled. The creator speaks, and creation must immediately obey. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And again, that word great, there is a mega calm. And the waves stopped. And in an instant, Lake Galilee is silent. Now this just doesn't happen according to the normal laws of nature. The waves will continue to churn for many, many hours and days once the wind has died down. And in verse 40, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And Jesus strongly rebukes them. And notice what he didn't say. Why are you afraid? But why are you so afraid? It's one thing to be afraid of the storm, but why are you so afraid? that you doubt my love and care. Isn't this the same doubt and fear that the Israelites had when they complained against Moses after God had rescued them out of Egypt? Why has God brought us out to die in this wilderness? Isn't this the same fear we have when God sends something our way that we don't like? We don't like the Lord's pruning, do we? We don't like his discipline. We don't like his training. And we moan, does the Lord really love me? Well, so far, 
The disciples have only experienced fear, but now they have great fear. Verse 41, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were afraid during the storm, but now they're really afraid. How fearful? Well, you guessed it. It's that word mega again. It's a mega fear. And why? Well, as John MacArthur writes on this verse, the only thing worse than having a storm outside your boat is having God in your boat. It can be a fearful experience. I want to conclude now um, by sharing something that that we've been going through, a pretty stormy uh, week for for us, for for our family, uh, being tossed around in a storm uh, that was pretty fearful. Um, The storm started on... Friday the 11th of the 11th at midnight when our granddaughter, age nine, called emergency for an ambulance for her mum, our daughter Deborah, who was very unwell and in excruciating pain. What followed was a 40-hour nightmare in ED, the emergency department. Most of that time we spent with her Initially, she wasn't believed, and she was under-treated. We were told that there's something showing up on the x-ray, and then we were told there wasn't. Uh, They put a long drainage needle into her shoulder, into her shoulder joint twice, without an anaesthetic. It took 18 hours before the correct blood samples were taken for culturing. When blood culturing results finally came through at 11am on Sunday morning, it showed that Deborah had septicemia. She was very ill. At four o'clock in the afternoon after 40 hours, she was finally admitted and given a bed. That storm was bad enough, but what followed were three days of ups and downs and being tossed around. She lost the use of her left arm as the poison moved up into her neck. She was on morphine for pain and an intravenous drip of antibiotics for the bacteria. By Monday, her condition was very serious. And thankfully, the full medical process came good. But this is a storm like I've never experienced. The storm continued just as we came to terms with the result of one test. Another wave would hit us. On Wednesday, she had surgery to remove a large abscess and some infected bone from her shoulder and have a drainage tube inserted. And just when we thought the storm was beginning to subside, another wave hit us. 
the news that the bacteria had colonised in her heart valve. And finally, on Thursday, the storm subsided and she started to improve. And again on Friday and again on Saturday. Well, she's still on antibiotics. She will be for the next six weeks. Um, And we'll know tomorrow if the medication has dealt with the bacteria on her heart. But you know, the strange thing in the middle of this storm, early in this storm, I had a very great sense that the Lord was in control. And I felt peace as I read God's word and prayed and was encouraged by knowing that other brothers and sisters were praying. But the ups and the downs of being tossed about, just like the disciples in a storm, is a frightening experience. And it does turn your stomach. It can make you seasick. Well, I want to conclude by saying that having a close relationship with Jesus doesn't mean that you won't experience the storms of life. In fact, the opposite is true. We will have troubles. God's promise is not that we won't have troubles, but that he will be with us in those troubles. Jesus' calm and peace in the middle of a storm while his disciples are panicking may seem quite contradictory, but he promises that peace to his disciples and consequently to us. Listen to what he says in John 16, verse 32. A time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Whatever form the trouble comes in, let us be fully convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is the one who determines the severity and the limitations of our trials. He appoints our trials in love and promises to be with us in them. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Let us not lose heart or doubt God's love. For as we are reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen 
are eternal. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. Amen. And music team, we will sing our closing song, which is a great old hymn.